Hello, it's Brody. I love bringing mummification to you each week, and if you'd like to support me to keep doing that, you can make a once-off donation through the Acast supporter feature. There's no regular subscription, and your donation will help pay our music license, buy audio gear, and put fuel in my car so I can keep interviewing the amazing women who share their stories with us. There's a link in the show description and episode show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Mummification. I'm your host, Brody Matner. This podcast is a space for women and parents to talk about how they're feeling. And sometimes they feel like swearing. So this episode may not be suitable for young ears. I'm ready when you are. Okay, ready to rock. Great. I am extraordinarily honoured today to be chatting with Claire Bowditch. Claire is a musician, author, broadcaster, speaker, life coach and mum to 19-year-old Asha and identical 15-year-old twins Oscar and Elijah. Did I get their ages right? You sure did. Oh, great. Thanks, Instagram. That was... (laughs) (laughs) Wait until you hear their heights. (laughs) Oh, oh, no. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I'm, um, yeah, I just think it's such a beautiful podcast and it's a real service that you're doing to just have something that is comforting and true for people who have just gone through this or, you know, or in the throes of, but especially those who are new to this game of motherhood. Yes, yes, it's, oh. the, it's the New Year's that, um, that are, uh, well, I'm still in relatively New Year's. I was going to say the most shocking, but perhaps I'm wrong. I think they're the most difficult. I I agree with you. I think they're definitely the most challenging and they're that for a few reasons and I'm sure we'll get to those. Yes. <laughs> now, I do ask all of my guests the same first non-motherhood related question. Yes. If you were stuck on a desert island and you could take one meal, one drink and one personal item, what mm. would they be? So I've been thinking about this and I wondered if this was okay or not but the meal I would bring bring the meal I would bring is called soup (laughs) and the reason I say that is because I really found it hard to differentiate I've got uh, my Swiss German godmother Rita's uh, pea and uh, sorry pea and lettuce soup I've got my my mum's minestrone my mum's lamb shank my dad's um, bean soup I've got like I am friggin meant I've got the laksa so if I say soup I've got a few options okay that's it's not technically correct, though. So if I had to bring one soup, I'd be like, 
I bring my mum's lamb shank soup. Oh, oh God, it's good. <laughs> do you have the recipe? I do, I do. It's, um, Excellent. The, the tricks are related to bay leaves, cloves and uh, and tomato paste and it's a Dutch recipe. Of course. Mm-hmm. And a drink? Drink coffee. I mean, sorry, I just have to bring coffee. Yeah. Uh, I'd rather forgo all alcohol in favour of coffee. Um, but if it was a drink, drink, I'd bring my favourite at the moment is a lime gimlet. Oh, I haven't had a lime gimlet. Yeah, we've. Oh, you're going to love it. We've got a beautiful lime tree in the back, and it's just a yummy little drink. And a personal item. So my personal item, I did struggle with this, but I reckon um, I would have to bring an instrument. I'd ha- probably have to bring my guitar. Yes. Now your book, your own kind of girl, is so glorious, and I won't spoil it. But the book ends as you have your first child, Asha, who's now nineteen. Yeah. So if you were going to add another chapter to your book about motherhood, mm-hmm. what would that chapter look like? Look, I think it really would be a chapter of hope and reflection. So I think about this a lot um, by virtue of my job, which is one of those you know, uh, jobs that basically the only central hub is that uh, I am mad about creating new ideas and new things and um, So it's basically in the world of creativity, I guess you could call it, and um, education. Because of this, I often, very often, um, get the chance to have chats, sometimes with strangers who like a song, who come up to me. And I remember myself sometimes in them at that stage. So, for example, not long ago, a woman came up to me in the supermarket, baby on her hip, uh, new baby, and she was very much wanting to communicate a song that had meant something to her. And she said that thing that so many people say to me, which is, I wish I could sing. And I I have worked on a different theory for 20 years that if we can speak, we can sing. And we've actually got it quite wrong about creativity. We think it belongs to special people with special talents. But for me, I actually find that a personal relationship with creativity and play which is mixing together things that you know for the purpose of pleasure mixing together things and inventing new things and having that style of approach to motherhood was the only thing in retrospect that saved me because it was flexible enough and allowed me to be flexible enough to deal with what really is the utter crushing and reforming of your identity (laughs) (laughs) to put it mildly yeah it is a um, foreign land that you'd expected to feel like one thing and it's, and it does feel, you do get there, you do actually find that sense of satisfaction um, sometimes with parenting. But I'm now 15, 20, uh, 15, 20 years along the, the road. It's so much easier now, um, <laughs> even through the complex waters of teenagers and so on. That point that you're in when you're right at the beginning, it really is a near impossible task to retain, um, yeah, that thread with um, a self-identity. And so I think it's really healthy to be able to do that where you can, but it's also really handy to be able to do that with your children because you're helping give them and model for them the same thing. So I would be a lot easier on myself 
and I would play. That's my advice. Like really just, if you can, in the little moments, play. Yes. And what story did you tell yourself about motherhood before you became a mum and was it different to the story of motherhood that you're living now? Look, I think the story of motherhood that I told myself before is really clear in a song that I wrote called um, On This Side, um, which people often think I wrote after becoming a mother, but I didn't. I wrote it after falling in love with Marty Brown. My sister had had a baby and I had a little, I had quite a realistic idea of what motherhood would be, you know, Um, because I'm the youngest of five. So I'd never brought up a, a, a sibling, you know, myself as my, all of my other siblings had. But my mom was one of 11, my dad was one of five, family was a big part of our life and I loved boobies. I just expected to feel tired and I expected to become a much better person because of this thing called motherhood somehow magically. I didn't realise, I've said this before, but I didn't realise that the becoming of who you're meant to be and who you are, that can happen through a, um, a reckoning with this new identity of mother. It happens. It happened for me anyway because it pushed me to the edge of what I thought was possible <laughs> to survive, you know, physically, emotionally, um, you know, heart-wise. heart, heart wise. It pushed me into a new capacity and because you have to be, um, you have to try really hard to, to do, you know, the love is so big and the responsibility and fear is so big that you got to, you can't not listen to it. It's not like other things in life that you can run away from, do a locational, et cetera. So that's what shocked me. I just thought I would find it easier. Um, you know, I just thought well, my kids are healthy and um, I've got a partner and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the negotiation of that and continuing or developing a career that is based on me being creative, which requires time, yeah, I, I don't think I, I, I just thought magically that would be easier. <laughs> oh, and how did you navigate that? Because creativity, like you said, it takes time and when you have babies you are so time poor and you you toured when the twins were little and Asha was a toddler and how yeah. did you do that with three tiny humans? Sure. Well, I'll talk about the practical stuff. The reason we did that and had to do that and were inspired to do that is because you work a long time to get an opportunity uh, to make your name in music. You have to make your name, uh, build your reputation in order to get well paid, in order to be able to do your job into the future. It's an annoying part of any career in creativity that you have to come to terms with the commerce of it and the, you know, I would have been happy if there were just four people in the room and me. But in order to build a career, you really have to um, cultivate your career, which means, sorry, cultivate your audience, which means getting the fuck out there. So, and both my husband and myself, were in it together. He is a drummer and a producer and a manager and an events guy. And we both worked on this one dream together and there weren't, there wasn't a plan B. There was no, you know, going to the taking up a job in accounting or so on. You know, it just, <laughs> I mean, Marty did have a commerce degree, but the truth was we were completely entwined and it was a family business. So there was that element of necessity, which it can be quite exciting and make you quite um, adventurous and you get on with it. And that was a moment where I just won my first RA, surprisingly. I just signed my first 
independently um, negotiated contract with a major label. And so that was a moment in time, you know, and we went for it. So that was that bit. But the earlier bit, um, when I had one baby, so to put it in context, Marty and I um, first became parents when I was 27 and he was 27 too, I think, or just 28. And our girl, Asha, you know, it wasn't, we hadn't gone, oh yeah, let's, let's get married and plan. We just finally, after years of being in a band together, fallen in love, gone for it and pretty much got pregnant on our first date. So that was exciting. <laughs> and that's all, again, that's a story I tell in my, in my book, um, because it's just the truth, you know, just so, and we, we were, we knew each other well enough and were in love enough and had enough confidence to be able to say, yep, let's roll with it. The joy of the the good good fortune, a again, a healthy child um, who was pretty happy to be born, you know, didn't sleep, neither did I. <laughs> That's all, you know, par for the course. What I had was an incredible set of neighbours. So um, I lived in a community from the age of 21, maybe 22, called, which was informally called Compost, a collection of, you know, um, old, uh, now old, they're in their 60s now, um, now they're in their 80s and they seem much younger than ever to me. But Gil and Mem, two mates who who married and bought houses um, with their other mates in this far-off suburb called Thornbury, which is only a couple of kilometres from the city but it was so far away and the houses were cheap in the 70s. And they're into permaculture, they're into education and together they did all these amazing things like start, you know, with their mates convert something like Ceres Environmental Park used to be a, a tip and they proposed an idea to the um, council and changed it into this environmental park. And, you know, they were really active, proactive, good humans and I had the good fortune to be one of the housemates in one of the houses there. And when we became parents we moved into our own house, me and Marty. And it was just a wonderful unusual you know no back fences lots of privacy but also lots of shared communication and at the time we had Asha we also had a wonderful neighbor called Rachel um, and a a few neighbors great neighbors who were all having children as well and we were all either in the creative or you know sustainability uh, various movements building our name for ourselves and Rachel was writing a book at the time called which is at the time called The Divided Heart. It's now called Creativity and Motherhood. So that's Rachel Power. It's gone back into print a number of times. And I think it was Rachel who suggested that, look, we've all got creative projects to do. I had a first album to put out. Why don't we raise our kids together? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that was essentially we do our, you know, we would do lots of swaps. Um, we were just next door to each other and it, it meant that we got the kind of time you know, maybe just a few hours, a few times a week, but enough to continue on with these creative projects. So that was one of the ways that I did it. Another way I had the good fortune of having a husband who, like me, was flexible with work and was happy to live on bean soup. You know, we didn't need much. We didn't want much. Uh, We wanted our freedom, our creativity and to have time with our kid. So they were the choices we made and those were the things that worked. Um. The things that didn't work are plentiful and they had to do with, yeah, that lumpy, um, uncertain 
income around, you know, the early stages of building a creative career and now needing to provide for a child. I found that bit tough. I found the mental health stuff tough, the um, anxiety and and trying to care for my father was sick at the time and um, and I didn't like the bit where I had to be public in order to make my living out of this thing called singing, but I was I was dedicated to it but protective of the one little you know, precious thing that I had, which was a love of music. So there was lots of negotiating, lots of mistakes, um, tried to tour too early, have the most horrific um, time doing that. Just it, I just wasn't emotionally ready to tour for the first time and slowly, slowly found my feet. And you talk um, in your book, you talk a lot about anxiety and how you've learned to manage that over the years, did that really amp up for you after you had babies? Did you experience postnatal anxiety? My most difficult um, adventure with anxiety was the adventure that I had at the age of 21 when I was in London and thought I had a virus and instead it turns out I was having my, what really was my one genuine authentic nervous breakdown, they called it at the time, which meant um, rolling panic attacks, to the point of really, you know, losing half my body weight, unable to sleep and so on. One of the things that got me through was thinking, well, one of the things that got me through was a book by Dr. Claire Weeks called Self-Help Be Your Nerve, which helped me take the fear out of the fear, which was a thing that was rolling the anxiety. And that was a really enormously useful skill um, and would become so when I became a mother. The other thing that really helped was just thinking, well, one day when I recover, and it did take a while, um, I will have a story to tell about this and it will be a hopeful story. And I was too shy to tell it and too embarrassed. You know, our conversation about mental health at that time was really still attached to so much judgment and, you know, real prejudice and real fear. It wasn't normalised as it is now. Now we know it's one in four, one in three, one in two. You know, a lot of people experience an acute episode of mental ill health or anxiety at some stage in their life. So I frame that by saying when it came to having um, a baby, I was terrified. Some part of me was still terrified even though I had recovered and I had my techniques for dealing very well with the kind of mind that would have a tendency to to, to um, go into fight and flight quite regularly. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to call it a superpower, but I'm going to say it certainly did give some energy to things. And <laughs> the thing that had triggered my initial anxiety um, that terrible time was a lack of sleep. So I was really afraid of that and I did have a really um, difficult time at six months. That's when I tried to do my first tour with Asha. Hadn't slept for a long time. Again, was in the throes of having a body that you know, I just couldn't, couldn't I couldn't keep weight on at the time and I couldn't um I, I yeah I had effectively I needed to rest and take it a little easier and that was a difficult really difficult time because I was still in that early mistake that so many of us make where I thought I had to pretend to have it together because I thought uh, I hadn't quite got my head around the theory of the good enough mother yet mm. um and I hadn't got my head around the theory of, you know, we didn't have such a great conversation around, um, around. well, Marty was the only dude who was there picking up Asha from um, 
childcare at that time, you know. The, yeah. It's unusual in that environment to have fathers who were co-parenting. And so the pressure was difficult. So the most the most challenging part was that bit in between six months and 12 months where I wasn't ready to disclose that I what I didn't feel okay. Um, I was grieving my father having been diagnosed with dementia or, you know, was unwell and um, and I was carrying a lot of burden. And then from the moment where I put my hand up, I went to the maternal health nurse and I went, I'm not okay. And she said, you know, are you sleeping yet? Are you still breastfeeding yet? She's like, okay, so let's have a chat. <laughs> I still thought that you were supposed to do it all in a certain way then. Now, far out, if I had another kid today going through perimenopause as we speak, so unlikely <laughs> woman from a mother's parish had twins at 49 just warning you all um yeah woof uh so (laughs) but if I did again and the approach I took with the twins was lays on fair like kid you know it's wonderful if you can breastfeed it's wonderful if you can give birth in a way that allows you to recover quickly afterwards all of those things are fantastic and if you can't and if that's not possible you need to prioritize your health, your sleep, your ability to do your job highly. And if that means, for me, that was like I would just easily, without hesitation, to get a good night's sleep now and break that cycle of anxiety, I would, you know, give my kids a bottle, uh, ask my uh, husband, tell my husband that he was on and I was moving to the shed for a night. Like I just wouldn't hesitate to be quite forthright about whatever I needed to do to protect my mental health now Um, because it's essential. So I was terrified then when it came to having the twins that we found out we were pregnant with at 22 weeks. Again, I know the chances of postnatal depression are really, really high with twin mothers, incredibly so. And um, amazingly, I I carried them to 40 weeks. They were eight and seven pounds. And I knew how to ask for help then. And I found that whole scenario much, much, much more manageable. You know, because I had lessened my expectations, I was much more realistic, and I, I did that thing that I advised our friends listening to do, which is I learned how to just play with it a little more. Mm. So that's a lot. God, I can fucking talk, can't I? <laughs> I don't have to ask one so much to share. That's the point, though, right? That's right. I did write um, a chapter in a book called Motherhood that Jamila Rizvi curated. And I yes, think I have a- read it. Someone gave it to me when I was pregnant yeah. with my first. Lovely. So I mentioned that book as a resource. I also mentioned, you know, self-help for your nerves as a resource. Um, but it's all those cliches of uh, you have to nurture yourself in order to be able to nurture your child. It didn't take much. It took, you know, a few minutes a day on my own or, you know, just a little. I actually really enjoyed the simplicity of routines by mm. the time I had kids. You know, with Asha, I was like, yeah, no, let's stay up late and go to the, yeah. You know, like I just, the kid comes with us everywhere. Um, <laughs> and interestingly, she's grown up like that. You know, she's a really mature 19-year-old. Um, but, yeah, they grow up and then you become the shortest in the family. that's what's happened in our family and now I'm back at an amazing point in parenting where you're like oh my god I've got time what am I gonna do (laughs) well I work on (laughs) (laughs) it's 
It's matrescence and identity are often spoken about in terms of um, the shift we, you know, immediately undergo mm. when our babies are babies. Yes. But because your kids are young adults now, have you found that your identity has shifted, you know, several times along the way as they've grown? Enormously so. You know, and in that time I have gone from someone who had parents to someone who didn't, who doesn't now. Both of my parents are gone. I've I've been someone who was, you know, um, at an early stage in my career to someone who's now at a mature stage of much more choice in my career, in my various careers. And there's a lot for me. Um, my identity now actually reminds me a lot more of the identity I had when I was about 25, when we would go on road trips and I travelled to you know, overseas or go on adventures or just do little things at uni, like spend a few hours on felting bloody wool or, you know, whatever I want. There's a little, there's a lot more of that now, um, but it took a a while. You know, it took a while to come back to the sense of pleasure and ease that you have and maybe don't realise you have in the years before you have children. And we, yeah, we often say, like, what did we do with our time? <laughs> like, what, what shit did we waste our time on that we would do differently now that we know how precious it is? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember that too, Rachel Power saying to me, um, how extraordinary that elasticity of ability is. You know, <laughs> we've only got two hours to, I mean, I don't know how you do everything you do, Brody, and recording and editing such a regular podcast and we you can do amazing things in short periods of time when you bloody have to yes but also I'm 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 like you said um with Marty when your kids were little I'm I'm lucky enough that um I have a husband who said let's swap I'll Uh, I'll stay home you go great yeah all right then okay (laughs) (laughs) family <laughs> which is which is um which has been really interesting and, and and nice too I wish that more people had that flexibility or fought for that flexibility I know it's it's not available to everybody um, it's not it's not and there are bits in there again that come down to this stuff around choice what matters to us how much debt we're willing to carry in service um you know, just that practical financial stuff that mm. means whether you're a single parent, whether you're you have familial support or an inheritance, you know, whether you're independently wealthy, whether you you have a, a job while you're studying for, you know, there's all sorts of factors that get in play there. The things that I go back to sometimes or think about or that give me um, give me a reminder of what we want to choose as a family, you know, like. Um, which for us was time to be creative rather than, um, you know, the spare bed, spare bathroom, renovating for the spare bathroom or so on. We just, we didn't even start with that stuff until later, until our kids were older. Or, you know, the point being there are these beautiful books that we have that simplify this and remind me of this. There's one, there's a woman called Rhonda Hetzel. She didn't write the book till her 50s. It's just called, I've got it here. Hang on, I'll just grab it. Um, it's called Down to Earth. 
She's great. She's on Instagram. She's now well into her 70s. And it was like, oh, that's right. You can live really well um, in a much simpler way, which gives you more choices. Um, you know, that that is something that you can work towards. I'm not saying everyone, absolutely not saying everyone quit their quits their jobs, but <laughs> everyone Claire says go and run. The whole leap in the net will appear bullshit is just <laughs> I really think that's dangerous advice. Uh, I believe it's true when it comes to projects, but not you you don't have that luxury when you've no. got the realities. And I like to talk about the realities because I th- think people, you know, from Instagram and so on have an impression of everyone else has all this stuff. Now I don't know, the one decision we made that I still really love is that we would live reasonably simply mm. and, and retain our right to keep choosing a creative life because in Australia um, it's a challenge because our population is small, our audiences are small. So books like Rhonda Hetzel's um, Down to Earth or A Simple Home or there was another book called The Frugal Hedonist, which I love, um, these things helped inform the way that we wanted to live. I've got a lot of friends who've made very different choices and are very happy with them. I've got a lot of friends who are really reviewing their choices in light of COVID and the realisation of how short life is. Um, So I I think these things can be part of your identity forming as you're parenting. I know it's challenging and I'm, you know, yeah, I'm someone who's happy to shop in secondhand shops and... (laughs) Um, and those things were really handy. I think the pressure these days so often is to keep up. Mm. Um, that's who the fuck needs that pressure on top no. of everything. <laughs> Too hard. No, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. No. Um, now, before we wrap up, I did want to say to you. What, what happened? Did oh. we just um, talk? What? <laughs> no. No. No, no, not at all. I want to say thank you because oh. I saw you just before I gave birth to my first baby mm. and you said to me, you're going to love giving birth. It's bloody amazing. <laughs> and it really stuck with me and I found it so empowering. And so I wanted to say thank you for that because I think I thought of you as I was giving birth. I'm like, Claire said it was bloody amazing and it is. I am a powerhouse. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't know about you. I'm not the sort of person who's ever going to really run a really long marathon. Oh, that no. was my marathon, and I don't, you know, when I said that to you, and when I say that, I'm I'm not attempting ever to idealize the ease of it or pretend that it all goes the way you want. I just found that the most freaking interesting, intense, uh, brilliantly satisfying, bloody experience to go through that um, and had, you know, both both times. Like it wasn't like, you know, there were all sorts of things along the way, kids not breathing, turning the wrong way, you know, being prepped for the season and finally finding a leg, like all sorts of dramas around the birds. I I would just maintain it is freaking fascinating. Yeah. And it didn't. It didn't um, sound like you were uh, glorifying it or making yeah. it sound like it was all so easy. It was just a really great, solid message. I did mean it, and I do mean it. And I tell you what, Brody, this is the interesting thing. Someone, it's a baton that we pass on to each other if we can. Yes. 
something true from our experience of that. Now, that's something that is true for me. Someone passed it to me. A woman, I remember I went to a singing workshop with Faye White, community singing leadership, when I was pregnant with Asher and I was learning about this, you know, is it true that if we can speak, we can sing? Can I prove that? Have I got the skills to teach that, etc.? So I was doing this workshop and a woman just said to me, you know what? And she said a similar thing to what I said to you. And it took the fear out of it for me because it had this terrific dread. Um, And then just to have a little voice of championship in my head going, I can do this, you know, my mate did this. And, you know, I'm part of a long line now of it's the longest line I've ever been a part of. All of those humans did it. Mm. Oh, man. It's wild. I can't believe I'm never going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, but also maybe a bit thankful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, where are you at with that part of the? Oh no, Leith is has no penis left. We are not having another baby. <laughs> he he had that. his vasectomy very yeah. swiftly after we had June, and we're oh my gosh. we're out. L- look at you guys. See, um, that was a conversation that was had in our friendship group around a similar stage and unfortunately of the chaps who did go ahead with that procedure two of the three complete anomalies just happened to get these ridiculous infections you know or you know one went wrong this way that and it doesn't happen very often it just happened to happen in our friendship group two times and all the other boys were just like petrified i'm out i can't do it Let them get away with that this time. No, you know, Leith was in and out in 20 minutes and he came home with a, a Dr. Snip stubby holder and a Freddo. How brilliant. Oh. And that's it. The choice is made. Well yeah. done. <laughs> and so is there anything else that mm. you would say to other parents, new or with older kids, that's empowering? Yeah, so I, as a listener of the podcast, I knew this um, question was coming in. I did have a great answer and, geez, it's gone. Um, (laughs) I think the thing, again, reflecting back, the times that were and are precious still in my memory, and I actually get really emotional thinking about this because I don't feel like I, I let myself have enough of them and I want you to. Were those times when I just turned the dial down a bit on the friggin' um, on the pressure of it all and allowed myself to be in that moment with that child or that experience or that simple meal and just, you know, just allowed myself to not be fearful for the next thing or anxious for the next thing or on the make for the next thing or I try I remember trying at the time to keep it balanced and I think I did an okay job but now I really look back and go gosh what are the things I remember about my life with my parents you know there I've been contemplating pleasure a lot lately and this idea of of where we really find it and whether it's possible to find it in all sorts of weather regardless of what's going on so they're the moments I would just say if you can make a little room to not give so much of a shit about the washing. If I've got a friend, Emma, she the washing for her and getting the vacuuming done, this is her bliss, you know, and if it is your bliss, go for it. For me, I just 
always thought I was supposed to be better at it and we're not, you know, the kids are, um, all those beautiful quiet moments of just being able to sit with them uh, and be in their company and, and, yeah, that's what I that's what I would say. If you can, if you can make those little memories and let yourself off the hook a bit, lower your expectations a bit. They don't give a shit if they're wearing odd socks, you know, who cares? <laughs> no. That's what I would say and I don't know if that's useful to anyone, but I would just, that's my wish for you. It's that's... my wish for that woman in the supermarket who came up to me fraught and couldn't remember who she was <sighs> and I need to to get her, give her permission to go lie with her head on the grass and put her favourite song on. So do that. Do that. Mm. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much. Mate, thank you. I can't believe that we finally got to do this. I know. It took us like a year and I'm so wrapped that we got there. Thank you for sticking with me. Not at all. And I really do want to just commend you on what you're doing and send my very, very best realistic um, champion voice to anyone out there giving you a bloody crack. Good on you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. oh, Claire, just beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, mate, I didn't expect to get so uh, – I didn't know that was sitting there, but it is. It's, you know, yeah, it's just sitting there still. Just beautiful. I look forward to um, – yeah, I, I, I look forward to – because I know what happens with things like this. The pleasure of the, the the preciousness of being able to talk to someone at their most vulnerable, which is really this, I think the most vulnerable we are as women is in that period after we've given birth, because mm. I think nature asks us to be vulnerable, so we know what it is to care. Um, you know, to be able to spring to care and protect our offspring. But I know that whenever I talk to anyone in that space, I always hear back because it does it means as much to other people as it meant to me at that time. Yes. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, yeah, to hearing stories from other crew out there. Yeah, it's a real joy listening to people's stories and giving them space to talk about them. It's really, yeah. it's really lovely. Oh, good on you, my darling. podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and elders of other communities who may be listening. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Mummification is produced and hosted by me, Brodie Matner. I have exceptional editing help from Leith Matner and our beautiful music is composed by Ben Talbot Dunn. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.